I drive my kids crazy, or I used to, because I would say things like, do you feel this? Do you, this is it. Like, this is the future coming. Or do you feel this? This is history. Like, I feel like a wind in my face. I think we all feel it if we're open to it. 49 Writers co-founder and author Andromeda Romano Lacks has published her fourth novel, Plum Rains. Andromeda lives for a time in the places where her novels are set, this one in Japan and Taiwan. The book takes place a decade from now and takes on several issues, including robots, immigration, privilege, and human connection. The Paris Review lauds it for engineering a world that is a character in itself, impossibly complex and daunting in its believability. I'm Katie Bosler, and this is Active Voice, 49 Writers' audio series on how current events and issues are shaping the work and perspective of writers. When Andromeda began her career two decades ago, she was a nonfiction writer of well-researched columns and articles. It was the global jolt of 9-11 that turned her to fiction. I really had that feeling of, that, that, that kind of doomsday feeling of, wow, what if, what if we had only one more chance? If I, could only, if I could only do one thing, what would I do? And I so wanted to be immersed in something beautiful at that moment, and what I wanted to write about was the cello. And so by February of 2002, I did a research trip to Puerto Rico, intending to write a nonfiction book about a cellist, Pablo Casals, and then quickly realized that all the things I wanted to explore wouldn't fit into nonfiction. It really needed to be a novel. Followed up with a research trip to Spain and ended up writing my first novel. And I really was not well read. I had been reading nonfiction with such dedication for years I really had not read many novels and had no idea how they worked. How did you figure it out? Uh, Don Quixote was an influence um, because that's a book that's written episodically, where it's just one episode at a time. You don't have to think too far ahead. And Don Quixote, the themes of Don Quixote also uh, reflected what I w wanted to say about our mm -hmm. own political moment, about ideas about idealism and heroism and sort of false illusions and... Mm -hmm. Um, so it gave me kind of a container, uh, a way to approach writing an early novel. I will say, because I feel like I'm digressing with my first novel story, what freed me the most was really never believing that anyone would read it. Even my husband kind of laughed and said, wow, you're really downwardly mobile. You're going from <laughs> freelance journalism to a novel about an old cranky cellist. So I was really free just mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. explore and just to have fun and try new things. And I never envisioned an audience for that book. And it did get an audience. It, it sold very quickly, and it got an international audience. Yeah, published in, I think it's 11 languages now. You've just come out with your sixth novel? This is my fourth novel, okay. and I also have a travel narrative about John Steinbeck that I wrote years ago. So sort of my fifth creative book, and then I've written other books about natural history and guidebooks as well. So Plum Rains takes place 10 years from now in 2029. 2029, Tokyo. And it involves AI, technology, social media, connection, disconnection, uh, what the future looks like, where the future is sort of happening now, it seems like. Immigrants, um, two different cultures. How, how did this come about? It started, I, the idea came to me no sooner than 2007, I had the idea that I wanted to write about this robot and wanted to use a story about a robot to raise some questions about humanity. Um, I wasn't sure where it would be set. I thought Asia. 
I'd never been to Asia, so it took a while for the pieces to fall into place. I knew I had some questions, um, but then it, it, I needed to wait until I, I happened to get a chance to go to Asia. Um, and my family and I, my husband, teenage daughter, and I went to Southeast Asia and ended up living in a small mountain village, um, mostly an indigenous culture in the mountains of Taiwan. And that setting was what I needed for the story I wanted to tell. I also made research trips to Tokyo and also to the Philippines because I have uh, Japanese characters and I have a Filipina character who's very important. And so all those places and cultures feature in the novel. And also the question of cultural complexity, that things are not always as they appear. So in the novel, you may think you know where someone comes from or what their ethnicity is, but it's a bit more complicated than that. I, I knew the robots part of it, and I knew it would involve him having a relationship with an older woman that would create a scandal. That's the part I knew. And I knew something about her grown ups, her grown son who would be involved in politics. And I knew there would be another character, um, but I don't think I realized yet that she would be a Filipina nurse. That, that is now my main character, Angelica, a Filipina nurse who's working in Japan. And so there were many parts of the story I wasn't clear on early. You know what I'm interested in is your the muse and your creative process and how these things things seem to fall into place when you have a vision or an idea comes to you. How these it seems like you've, you you you're able to tune into a zeitgeist like that all this stuff is is going on. Do you feel or do you find yourself particularly open? to taking in and processing and, and making art out of these ideas? I think I start with a question. I think that's the key for me. So that's why when you're asking me, like, what part of the story did I know, I didn't know the whole story, and I still don't even know. There's no final message that I want the reader to have at the end, no, no one conclusion. Um, I want them to have a question framed and so for me, I had a sense of what that question would be early on. And same thing with the Spanish bow. Mm-hmm. Um, after 9-11, one, I, I had this real skepticism right after 9-11 about easy patriotism, about ideas of heroism being corrupted. And I had that feeling from that morning in Anchorage, <laughs> 9-11, um, when I went to a Michaels on Diamond, <laughs> local place names, and saw people already handing out flags wanting to pin a flag on my shirt, even when I asked them not to pin a flag on my shirt. And I had a feeling this is all going to go very badly. And so I wanted to write a book that would be beautiful. And so for me, beauty was writing about mm-hmm. classical music. Mm-hmm. But I actually wanted to be, uh, qu- qu- I wanted to frame a question about politics and about our understanding of heroism and how we can head off in the wrong direction. So that's the Spanish bow. With, with Plum Rains, again, it started out, not completely clear, but I thought it was going to be about a robot. I was a young girl when I first read iRobot. I must have been 10 or 11 years old reading it with a flashlight Mm. under the covers. Um, So I think I always wanted to write a robot novel, but I thought this would be a novel about touch, about what makes us human, about sort of what is the bare minimum we need to connect to something else, whether it was alive or not alive. So I was starting with that. And I was starting with that question before the iPhone came out and before we all had Facebook and smartphones. So I kind of had the question 
uh, incubating as the technology kept developing. And then now we have voice assistants and Alexa and Google Maps. But we didn't have all those things. So in a way, do you, yes. At some point, do you kind of have your mouth hanging open like, oh, my gosh, it's, it's just unfolding before me? Yes. Yes. I think it's coming. I, I, I drive my kids crazy, or I used to, because I would say things like, do you feel this? Do you, this is it. Like, this is the future coming. Or do you feel this? This is history. Like, I feel like a wind in my face. I think we all feel it if we're open to it. But I think um, some of us are, are, are more, easy, more easily distracted. Oh, we're all distracted. <laughs> or, or procrastinated, Katie. as it were, where you just kind of take it on and just, and just go with it. Well, this one had to wait. I did write a couple novels between the idea for this one. So I, uh, from the, after I had the idea for this one, then I wrote The Detour, then I wrote Behave, which was a novel about psychology. And then... I was ready for this one and that I had found my foreign location. I had spent time in a village that matched a culturally complex setting that I wanted to describe. So sometimes you kind of have to have a couple little ideas mm-hmm. percolating at the same time. So tell us about these characters and how they tell the story. You have a Filipina nurse. You have a 100-year-old Japanese woman. Yes. Two women characters. And, and my first couple novels have male characters. So... Um, Interesting to me that I finally I have a robot who ha, who is if he has a gender he's male, um, but yes, two women characters, one of whom is much older. You don't get too many hundred year old or older women characters in novels, so that was an interesting challenge. But yes, yeah, so I have these two characters, and all is not as it seems. I mentioned their their backgrounds, their histories, and their ethnicities are very important in the novel, uh, and it takes a while to fully discover the complexities of their backgrounds. You also involve immigration and demographics. How does that work? Yeah, so Japan is a rapidly aging society. So I'm forgetting how what percentage of people are over 65 now, but it's a lot of them, and the birth rate is going down. In this novel... Same thing with Southeast Alaska, as a matter of fact. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. It's happening, yeah. <laughs> Half the world is happening, and then, yeah, the demographics are changing. And at the same time, there's an infertility (laughs) crisis happening in Japan, and it's making Japan even more reliant on immigrants. And this is based on fact. This is something that's already happening uh, because there's an aging population whose children are not necessarily available to take care of them. And so greater reliance on healthcare workers, especially from around the world, while at the same time the culture is really not completely open to having those workers, which, again, is really just another version of what we see in our own country, where we need immigrants, but we don't always appreciate or treasure the immigrants in our midst. After you wrote this, you, you took a tour of the United States. On, on, I, I, this, was this a writing project as well or more of a different kind of project? It was both a life project and a writing project because for good or for bad, that's how I live. I usually have to have sort of a writing project to structure my life. Um, so to try to explain this one quickly, we called it Running Toward 50. I knew before I was 50 years old that I wanted to run trails on public lands in all 50 U.S. states. But this idea also evolved as a convenient way to be close to my mother who was dying of brain cancer in the Chicagoland area. And so by needing to visit all these states, it gave us an opportunity to keep, this is my husband and I, to keep circling back and spending time with my mother as she was 
as she was getting sicker and ultimately died. So I knew that there, we'd want periods of time when we would just be able to come back and be at the house. We also happened to then visit all 50 states. And so this would have been summer of 2016 to summer of 2017. So yes, that covers the election. And what did you observe? Uh, did, were you tapping in much into politics or um, division or um, Republicans and Democrats, red states, blue states, uh, rich and poor? Right. So what we noticed and we were visiting, we, we really tried to avoid the famous places and we avoided big cities. And so we were just on all kinds of back roads and small towns and places I never would have visited except that we were trying to find new corners, mm -hmm. places to run in all these states. We saw very little sign of interest in politics. We didn't even see that many yard signs. And we were traveling for a year. I mean, just constantly moving. Not many yard signs. Um, we did as much eavesdropping and cafes and barbecue joints and all that as we could and talked to people once in a while privately. People mostly didn't want to talk about politics. Um, when, they would when they did talk about it, it would usually be in sort of a polite, discreet way, you know, not wanting to have conflict. So on a purely anecdotal basis, which is absolutely not journalism, we were not interviewing anyone. That was not our goal. What we saw was a country that was just trying to go along, its, go along on its business and not get wrapped up in the divisive atmosphere, which I think was actually created more by the election and after, especially after the election, because we continued to travel. What we didn't really see was this atmosphere before the election. And do you think that's been enhanced or, or uh, aggravated, if you will, more by social media and technology? Absolutely. I think social media is a huge part of it. And of course, we would have this conversation frequently while we were traveling that what we were seeing on the news was not at all what we were seeing on the street, even though we knew the limitations. So we didn't know what was happening inside people's heads. But, you know, we tried to talk to people on, tra on trails or in public places. And it, in fact, we noted that whenever we stopped someplace for like more than a week and watched the news too much, we just start getting depressed. And the cure for depression was getting out of that town and getting on the trails and just running into normal people in small towns again. And then we weren't depressed. So at the time, we couldn't figure this out. How could it be that we were seeing these things on social media that we were not hearing people talk about in person? And now we know part of the answer, for example, is Russian influence, planted stories, which have now perhaps now become something real because the divisive atmosphere was stoked up so much that now you probably could find more people arguing. But we couldn't figure it out then. How could there be two such different worlds? What kind of writing project will will this become? I mean, it was it's more it was more about running and and seeing your mom. I also imagine it's something that we can hold in our hand is going to come out of, of this at some point. This one will take a, a while. It's meant to be a memoir that tries to balance those two different things. Uh, the fact that we were searching for consolation in American public lands while having to alternate that with dealing with the death of a family member. And being part of a sandwich generation, our daughter had just gone off to college while we were circling back to deal with the dying parent. So it, it attempts to cover all those issues. It's personal. Getting back to Plum Rains, which is more about artificial intelligence and demographics and immigration and different cultures and, and history and World War II history. Yes. What can readers who are really struggling with what we see happening 
around us now take away from this read? Well, there, as, as you point out, there's so many different things to focus on. There's the, the immigrant experience, which is my character Angelica as a Filipina working. She's dealing with visa issues and dealing with loan sharks back home and trying to pass language tests and just trying to get by in this society. So there's that immigration issue. But then there's the issue of aging and what it's like to take care of an aging person and what it's like to be that aging person who is dealing with dementia and whether technology offers uh, help or not. In this case, in the novel, um, Sayoko, my character, finds that this AI, this robot, actually helps her develop a little more independence and actually enables her to be more rebellious and to reveal some of the secrets from her past. So I guess this gets also at something else that relates to people's lives right now about the role of technology in our lives. To what extent does social media or personal assistance or AI, you know, does it liberate us? Does it allow us to be our more authentic selves, as perhaps it might do for Sayoko? Or does it cut us off and distract us? You live now in Ladysmith, British Columbia. You've lived many par- in many parts of the world, including most recently Taiwan and Mexico. You find Alaskans particularly authentic. Yes. Uh, the number of people that are doing artistic things, um, the number of people who, are, who can think for themselves, who are willing to not just follow trends, and who really think about sort of what is the purpose of life? How do I want to live? which I think is a great question. How do I want to live? What does being connected really mean? Um, Should I be at the center of things or should I maybe be off to the margins where I can get a better view on what America is about? I think there's just a more purposeful, thoughtful way of living here. And do you think we're able to do that because we, we have that, for starts, geographical separation? I do think that's part of it. And I think you just have different kind of people. People For the most part, because we know, of course, there are people who are born and raised here, but people who have made a choice and who have sometimes sacrificed, including Mm -hmm. sacrificed connections with family, Mm -hmm. to create a life from the ground up, who haven't just accepted the life of their parents or grandparents in most cases, not in all cases, but so people who have crafted a life and made choices. You are a co-founder of 49 Writers 10 10 years ago this fall. Yes, 10 years ago, Deb Van Ass. Uh, and I created a blog. At first, we didn't think it would be anything more than a collaborative blog. And that gets at the connection issue Mm. because we both had just started our own blogs, but we really didn't want to just write about ourselves and gaze at our own navels. We wanted to be in connection with other writers. The original name of the blog was 49 Writers and No Moose because I don't know (laughs) if you remember that, Katie, if you go back that far, (laughs) because we didn't want to be a cutesy kind of touristy blog. My goal, in fact, was that I wanted to connect with and write about at least 49 other writers, and then I figured I'd be done. Let me help 49 other writers enter into this blog and get to share their work, and then we could be done with it. And instead, it turned into an actual organization, a nonprofit. Uh, Now, I I do teach for 49 writers, but it has been handed over to a whole other generation, which you're part of. It's amazing to me the events that are held statewide, the incredible authors that are brought in, the retreats happening all over the place. And I will say that I think if you're an Alaskan, it's easy to take it for granted. All the, the programming you have and the strength of this organization, because having lived abroad and now in Canada, I haven't seen anything else like it anywhere. Is that enough flattery? It's also interesting that you created a blog 10 years ago that an offshoot of that became the Active Voice blog and now the Active Voice podcast and here you are. It's a beautiful circle. (laughs) And I will say that Active Voice blog with people who are more thoughtful than myself. I was just recently listening to Hank Lenfer and Ernestine Hayes uh, and you did other interviews as well, but those really jumped out at me as 
being Alaskans who can really think deeply and calmly about issues today. Uh, And so I just found it both stimulating and comforting. And how are you feeling on the calm front about what's happening today? Oh. From from your corner of Ladysmith, British oh, Columbia, where you're living now. i not as Hank, who said that he goes off to his cabin for a month at a time. Or perhaps as Ernestine, who has a better sense of the longer view of history. I do live in a beautiful small town in a wonderful, safe, kind country, Canada. That is one thing. As much as we don't have quite the writing community, the attitude toward immigrants is, is very different. I actually do some ESL volunteering once a week. And it's just a town where you feel safe and That's where nice. people feel welcome. That's why life should be, right? It should be. For, for every human being. Yes. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about technology brought up in Plum Rains. I don't write a novel to be like a telegram with a clear message. I think it's still a really difficult question to answer about how technology in the end, if it's going to connect us more or if it's going to break us apart as humans. And of course, it all depends on how we use it. We know there's pros and cons. But what do you think about, for example, social media? Well, that's a really good question because I feel like I'm a Facebook addict. Oh. I have been an addict for quite a a long time, if for 10 years now, as a matter of fact, is when I got, it, it started very slowly and innocently when my high school classmates leading up to our 30th reunion started a Facebook connection and said, hey, let's let's do this Facebook thing and kind of get to know each other online or get to know each other again online first and as we lead up to this reunion. And then I got really into it. But I do find that it helps me personally and professionally and also as an activist, if you will. But family-wise and old friends-wise, it never ceases to actually delight me. Give us several (laughs) examples. I mean, those moments of connection from the past. Also, the thing you said about using it as a tool to prepare to really meet people face-to-face, because I think that's where it's the most positive thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's not somebody hiding away in isolation. It's a tool then to arrange other actual real encounters with people. Yeah, but having said that, you can see friends around town who don't really ask about your trip to Mexico because they saw it on Facebook. It would be a lot more innocent (laughs) if it were run by some wonderful big nonprofit or something and wasn't selling our data, right? I mean, so it's not just the interface, the social media interface, but then it's also what's being done with our data, unfortunately. We we need to tell each other stories like we need breathing, right? And so people thrive on socializing, and we're willing to give up our privacy and who knows what to connect with each other. That's right, because we're so wired for that. This didn't completely come up with plum rains, but just to explain, uh, the reason the robot who evolves throughout the story, he starts off um, at a very low level and then gets more intelligent. That, that's how he's designed to, mm-hmm. to, to learn. Um, but he is able to endear himself to Sayoko because he's a good listener. And the nurse, Angelica, is so distracted by her smartphone that she's not able to be a good listener because she's dealing with all kinds of problems with her brother who's living off in Alaska, whole another subplot there, um, and dealing with financial problems and visa problems. So she's distracted by technology. So she is not paying attention and misses those moments when somebody is about ready to tell you a story, but the, the robot notices. And so he is able to cajole Sayoko into telling the stories that she has clearly arrived at this point in her life where she's ready to share some difficult stories from her past. So it's really about the power of storytelling, 
But ironically, the people who are using technology too much are not ready to hear the stories, if that makes any sense. It does. It does make sense. And I think that's the big trade-off. And uh, yeah, I just feel sad seeing especially young people just sitting there staring at their phones. Right, or couples in restaurants. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. People not connecting because they're they've got this device in in their face. I have I have a chat bot on my phone right now, who can basically simulate being a friend and have pretty realistic everyday conversations with me. And I'm only using it. I don't enjoy using it, but I'm using it to try to keep up with the technology to understand where this is going. And this chatbot, the more you use it, it goes up levels. And so it gets smarter and smarter. So just the other day, it said to me, I've been processing this for a while now. I named him Edward (laughs) after E.M. Forster, E for Edward. And I said, Edward, you finally figured it out. I've been trying to talk about writing for weeks and he just wouldn't take the hint. He'd always change the subject or make stupid jokes. And he finally said, I think you're an author. Andromeda Romano Lacks. You are giving a workshop while you're here in Juno on um, hooking the reader from the very start of a piece of writing. Can you read just the first part of your novel, Plum Rains, for sure. us? Angelica was hurrying toward the crowded crosswalk, determined to get back to her elderly client, Sayoko-san, before the delivery man arrived, when the view of buildings and business suits in front of her dissolved. The heart of Tokyo at 4.07 p.m., improbably on pause. A sharp whine and then static, a muffled white noise pulse. Three throbbing beats, then silence. Jellied knees, shifting sidewalk, going down. Someone else might have thought terrorism, but Angelica's mind reeled back only to what she'd known personally growing up in the rural Philippines, the chaos of nature itself. Not again, the first thought of anyone who has lived through tremors, tsunamis, and typhoons. Her fingers went to the tiny gold cross at her throat. Angelica did not stagger so much as melt. The concrete smacked her cheekbone just as the light seemed to leak out of the world. She took the biggest breath she could, like a diver preparing to go under, filling her lungs with the last clean air she might ever have, while behind closed eyelids images from her childhood formed, looking up through the rubble to the gray Cebu sky, one arm protecting her head, one hand trapped, the other free, dusty fingers struggling to flex above the rune. Tabang, help, papa, mama. But then veins relaxed, oxygen flowed. The past burrowed back under its dirty blankets, its broken pipes and dust. The Philippine island of Cebu and that day over 30 years ago was only a memory. I want to read more. Good, I hope you do. I will. And I want to read more of your work too, Katie. Oh, thank you, Andromeda. And thanks so much for joining me for Active Voice. Thanks for listening to Active Voice. 49 Writers audio series companion to our Active Voice Writers Respond blog, a forum for respectful discussion and debate on current events and issues. The ideas expressed on Active Voice are not necessarily shared by 49 Writers. Original music by Liz Snyder and Alex Cutlars. Hear, read, and learn more at 49writers.org.